1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'd like to begin by welcoming you, and while I have you here, I want to go ahead and invite you tonight at 5. I want to talk about a word that's uh, become very important in our time and place. That word is tolerance. I want to take a biblical look at that word and that concept and talk about what it looks like to uh, maintain a faithful biblical tension when it comes to Christians' relation to sin and to tolerance and all of that sort of stuff. So come back this afternoon at 5. I think we have some uh, important things to remind ourselves of. So 1 Corinthians 9. We come to a place here in 1 Corinthians where Paul has already dealt with a lot of awfully heavy things uh, in terms of difficult doctrinal teaching as well as some just strong rebukes and corrections that need to be made. Um, in Corinth, there was just a whole lot of immaturity. There was uh, preacheritis, where people were dividing themselves based on who their favorite preacher was. They were dividing over some petty and foolish things. There's sexual immorality in the church, and people thought that what they did with their bodies had little consequence to their eternal soul. There's a tolerance of sin. There's that word. They also wrestled with hard doctrinal questions, like... What do you do with meat that's been sacrificed to idols? And pretty much all the meat you buy in the meat market was killed and sacrificed to some pagan god. So what does that mean to Christians' relationship to, uh, to what they eat? Difficult questions. It's a dense letter. It's an intense letter. And there's a lot more to come after this chapter as well. From beginning to end, 1 Corinthians reminds us it, it can be hard to be a Christian. It's difficult to do church right and well. It's a challenge to be a Christian faithfully over the long haul. That's not meant to discourage us, but it is meant to call us to reality. Too too often we focus on on some just very superficial and obvious tokens of faith, but we don't really understand the deep commitment required. And so we use a superficial definition of word like faithful. You know, our definition is do they show up to the building regularly? Or, Or our definition of sound is do they have a piano in the auditorium? But this letter reminds us there's a lot more to it than that. It can be difficult to live as a Christian day by day, month by month, year by year. And it's a substantial commitment. It's not just something we add to our lives that are already full lives and, oh yeah, I'm a Christian too. It's not just another title we throw on the pile of a whole bunch of identities we have. Right? So I'm a teacher, or I'm an engineer, I'm a father, I'm a mother, you know, I'm a sibling, and oh yeah, I'm a Christian too. That's another one of those things that I am. That's not what it is. Being a Christian is all-encompassing, an umbrella under which everything else sits. So by the time we get to 1 Corinthians 9, it's almost like a timeout from a lot of the weighty stuff in this letter and from the doctrinal questions. And he steps back here and he reminds the Corinthians that it doesn't matter, it doesn't just matter how you start the Christian life. What really matters is how we finish the race. This is 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 24. One of my favorite passages in the New Testament. First Corinthians 9 verse 24. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive an imperishable wreath, but we, sorry, they do it to receive a perishable, but we an imperishable wreath. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. 
Paul says here, you know, it doesn't so much matter what you've done in the past. It's what you're doing in the present and what you'll be doing at the end when it comes to your eternal reward. He even says in verse 24, interestingly, he says, treat, treat the Christian run, the, the race, treat it as a race that only one person can win. Run like you actually want to win. Run like you want this more than anything else. Now, he piles up these athletic metaphors here, and this, I think, would have connected with his Corinthian readers very well. Corinth hosted something called the Isthmian Games. The Isthmian Games every two years. Uh, it's very much a parallel uh, event to the Olympic Games, which were also happening in this time. But citizens of Corinth would have been well acquainted with these uh, athletic events, with running, with boxing. They would have seen world-class athletes compete in these events every two years. It would have been very central to their culture. And, and by the way, when he says they do it, they do the, all these things to receive a perishable crown or a perishable wreath, he's not kidding. You know, in the Olympics today, what do people get? They get a medal, right? They get a precious medal. That's, that's something. There's weight to that. There's value to that. You know what they got in the ancient world? You know what the prize was for, for winning one of these events? You got vegetables. Literally, you got vegetables. The crown awarded to the winner of the Isthmian Games was literally a wreath made of celery. A wreath made of celery. I hear that if you set a world record, you got peanut butter to go with it. How long does that crown last? How long? It's rotting. I don't know. Days? Weeks if you're lucky? It's rotting? Paul says these athletes train and sweat and hurt and bleed for celery. Look at what worldly people will do for the sake of a perishable crown that means nothing. How much more should you run when your crown is the hope of eternal life? How much more diligence should you exert than them? It's a metaphor that would have hit home for the Corinthians. It needs to hit home for us. You know, everybody likes the reward. We like that idea of getting something great, but less common than that wanting of the end result, less common is the dedication to get it. Less common is the commitment it takes to get it. Less common is the sacrifice it takes to gain the reward. Reminds me of a story I, I heard, just kind of a preacher story. You know, there's a workplace where there's difficult on, ongoing negotiations between labor and management. And uh, the workers, they keep sending the representative in to negotiate the deal. And so finally, the negotiator for the workers comes out and he says to everyone, great news, we have a new contract. You know, management, they've agreed to, to lighten the work schedule. And they all say, hooray. And, we, you know, he, they've agreed to 150% pay raise. And everyone says, hooray. And we're going to start at 10 instead of 9 and finish at 4 instead of 5. And they all say, hooray. And then he says, from now on, we're only going to work on Wednesdays. And there's a silence until someone in the back says, you mean every Wednesday? Right we like the reward. We like the benefit. We don't like to pay the dues. We don't really want to work or sacrifice or discipline or suffer to, 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 to pursue something worthwhile. You know, in sports, there, there is a big difference between playing to win and playing not to lose. Those are two very different things. You've seen it happen before. A team gets a big lead in the first half. They're completely dominating the other team, but then they blow it in the end because they stop doing the thing that made them get the lead in the first place. Right? They go into preservation mode and they stop, they stop trying. They start exerting themselves. They're just running out the clock. This passage is about this. As a Christian, just because you've gotten off to a good start, I've been baptized, my sins are washed away, I have a new lease on life, that's a great start. But just because you've gotten a good start doesn't mean you're done, not even close. You don't just, after you're baptized, sit back 
and cross your fingers, hope the world doesn't taint you. Oh, I hope I don't lose the, the great salvation I've just gotten, right? So now I'm just, I'm running out the clock. No turnovers, no sin, right? No apostasy. We'll just try to maintain. Sometimes we get that attitude. I've gotten saved. I've been baptized. I did some good things. And so now if I can just get to the end without falling off the wagon, then we'll have done it. Paul says you're not running the race in that case. You're not running like you want to win. There is a definite focus on all these athletic metaphors Paul uses. Look in verse 26 again. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. These are ridiculous images, right? So here I am, I'm running, but I'm just running in circles. I'm not actually headed anywhere. There's no thought to it. Okay, I'm boxing. What am I boxing? Boxing the air. Well, what is that doing? Paul says there needs to be a vision of where I need to be, a focus, a plan about where it is that we're running. And so we don't just get wet in the baptistry and then run out the clock. There is a never-ending pursuit of conforming to Christ. There is influence that we need to cultivate and develop. There are other people whose souls need to be saved. There are virtues we need to cultivate and grow in. We don't automatically get those the day we're baptized. There are other weak people to be encouraged. There are people who need to be served. All of these require a very clear focus, a very clear vision on what it is we're up to as Christians. And to that end, he says, there is discipline required. Verse 27, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Discipline. This works perfectly with the athletic metaphor. Professional athletes are some of the most physically disciplined people on the planet. Their training controls everything they eat, the amount that they sleep, how much they're allowed to weigh, the, the effort they exert in, in the gym, the development of their skills. There is an immense amount of discipline in being a high-level athlete. There's also an immense amount of sacrifice required. Right? A lot of young people fantasize about being a professional athlete, going to the NFL, going to the NBA, playing in the major league. But just stop and think what those people have to sacrifice to get there. Right? Often they sacrifice their youth in order to achieve the goal. They sacrifice pretty much every other aspect of their life and they're stunted in their growth and their, in their education and their intellect and their interpersonal skills and their relationships because they have idolized this one thing. Often they have to sacrifice their, sacrifice their future health in order to achieve it. The prime example, one of the greatest running backs ever was Earl Campbell. We're going heavy on sports metaphors today, by the way, because Paul does. Um, Earl Campbell is one of the greatest running backs of all time. If you've seen Earl Campbell after about the age of 40, he can barely walk. Right? He gave himself, his body, he sacrificed his future health for this, for this athletic goal. There's a sense in which in the spiritual realm it's no different. Jesus tells us we must be ready to leave all, to sacrifice all in order to follow him. There are sacrifices to be made. He says we need to lose our life in order to find it in him. We need to be willing to sell everything, he says, to gain treasure in heaven. I just want to point this out. The the second half of verse 27, uh, to me, is one of the most haunting sentences in the Bible. Verse 27, I discipline my body and keep it under control. And here's why Paul says I have to do that. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is Paul speaking. So here's Paul, baptized, obviously. Serving as an apostle. Writing the Bible. Mentoring young preachers like Timothy. He's in prison for Jesus. He's getting beaten for Jesus. He's going to be martyred for Jesus. And yet even he understands if he does not finish the right way, all that came before won't count, for, 
won't count for much before the Almighty. I myself could be disqualified. You never reach a point in life where you say, I've done enough, I can stop now, I can rest, I've done enough so I can just coast, coast in. And to drive this point home, he goes on to say what he says in chapter 10. By the way, this is a terrible chapter break. That word for in verse 1 connects what he's about to say to everything he has just said. And what he's doing in 1 Corinthians 10 is giving an example of what it is he's talked about. That it doesn't matter how you start, it matters how you finish. Well, it matters that you start, of course, but it matters now even more that we finish. That you can still be disqualified Despite your good start, despite the blessings you received in the past, you can still be disqualified. So we need to discipline ourselves, we need to work, we need to sacrifice, we need to focus. Paul says, let me give you an example of a a group of people who didn't do this, who didn't do what I just told you to do at the end of chapter 9. I know them because they're my people. It's my history. It's an illustration of what Paul does not want to happen to himself or to the Corinthians. So what he does is he uses examples from Israel's history and he says, we are not the first people of God to run the race. We are not the first people to be baptized. We're not the first people to start toward the promised land with a promise that we'll get there. But let me tell you about a group of people who had all those things, who had to start but didn't finish. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 1. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. And then he gives examples of things they did that made God not pleased with them. These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things, all those stories recounted in the Old Testament, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. What Paul is doing is succinctly summarizing what Israel had happened in her history in the wilderness. This is a a brief history of the wilderness wandering, really a low-lights retelling of that post-Exodus pre-promised land. So he begins in verse 1 with that pillar of cloud, that led the people, the parting of the Red Sea. He says in verse 2, very interesting verses, you know, these were a people who came through the water and came out the other side to save people of God. They were, in a sense, baptized as much as we are. In a sort of metaphorical sense, here are people who are baptized, made God's people through the water. God then fed them with manna and, he, and brought them water from the rock. He provided for them. And there's even some connection here to Christ providing for them in the wilderness. They've been provided for by the Savior. God gave them everything they needed. They had a good start. They had a promise of where they were going. Here is a great start for God's people. But then it goes downhill from there. Verse 7 references Sinai and the golden calf. They learned nothing of what God had done for them 
And so when Moses is taking too long to come back down from the mountain, they have Aaron make them a golden calf, and they say, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you out from Egypt, and they're ready to follow that golden calf now. Verse 8 references sexual immorality that happened at Baal Peor, where they joined themselves to Moabite prostitutes. There's the faithless grumbling at Kadesh Barnea in verse 10. This is the story where the the, the 12 spies go in. Ten came back and they say, we can't do it. We can't take the land. They're too big. We're, We're not powerful enough. And then all the people begin to grumble. God brought us out of Egypt only to die at the hand of the Canaanites. And so it says in Numbers, all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in the wilderness. Numbers 14 and verse 2. Would that we had died in the wilderness. That's what they say. You know what God says before that chapter is over? He says, you want to die in the wilderness? Would that we had died in the wilderness? You want to do that? We can arrange that. And then he does. He says, as for you, your corpus shall fall in the wilderness. I will give you your complaint. You would really prefer to die in the wilderness than trust and follow me into the promised land? Okay, we'll just give you what you ask for. See, Paul uses this pitiful history of Israel in the wilderness to show us an example of people who started well but failed to finish. They leave Egypt. They're baptized in the sea. They get manna and water from the rock. They get the law at Sinai. But even at Sinai, mere months after leaving Egypt, they doubt God. They continue to doubt God until almost every last one of them is dead in the wilderness. See, Paul says, here are people baptized like we are, and yet that didn't mean coast on in. That meant they were laid low in the wilderness. And so continue into verse 12. Therefore, he says, here's the so what of all of this. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. He says, Corinth, you need these stories. They're not just for them back then. They're for you and they're for us. We need to hear this every bit as much as Corinth did. You know, Corinth was a very proud church. Um, The book opens with Paul parroting their arrogance. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos, the sort of thing. We'll learn later about their pride and their spiritual gifts. They think that, that they're all God could ever want, that God is lucky to have us on his team. Paul says to them, it's one thing to start. It's another thing to finish. You know, you wouldn't be the first group of people to lose their way and get lost because you were too big for your britches. A good start does not equal a good ending. Therefore, if anyone thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. Being a Christian in and of itself is not enough. If by that, if by that you mean you're satisfied with the fact that you've been baptized and you attend church every so often. If you think you're okay simply based on your past, Paul says, don't count on it. You can be disqualified before the race is over, 927. Think of it this way. If you run a marathon and you run a great race for the first 17 miles and then you take a shortcut from mile 18 to mile 20, what happens? You're disqualified. It doesn't matter how far you've come. It doesn't matter your mile times from miles 1 to 17 because you've been disqualified. If you rest your confidence based on miles 1 through 17 only to skip to, from 18 to 20... If you rest your confidence based on your past and you're not paying attention to your present, you've missed the point. Verse 12, if anyone thinks he stands, take heed lest he falls. So verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. He says there's nothing new about this temptation. The temptation he's speaking of specifically, we could apply this verse generally, but specifically he's talking about the temptation to rest on your laurels. 
to be satisfied with what we've done, to kid ourselves that we have nothing more we can do. Paul says there's nothing new about that temptation. That's common to all of us. That was happening in Israel's day. It's happening in Corinth's day. It's happening in our day. No temptation has overtaken you. That's not common to man. He continues, God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Temptation is common to all of us, specifically the temptation to stop training, to, to, to stop being disciplined, to stop being focused, to stop being faithful, to rest on our past successes. Israel gave in to the temptation to quit following God to the promised land, so she died. She started right, but she didn't finish right. But he says, whatever our temptation is, it's not unique to us. Sometimes we want to justify and rationalize why we have failed, why we have given up, why we have quit, why we're not as faithful and committed as we ought to be. We want to rationalize. My situation is different. Nobody has dealt with what I have to deal with. I get special consideration. could be the temptation of sexual immorality, financial dishonesty, greed, materialism, misplaced time priorities, whatever. Verse 13, he says, it's not unique to you. And you do have the opportunity to overcome it. God has given you the resources to do it. He's saying to Corinth, Corinth, we all have decisions to make. We all have sacrifices to make. We all have things that need to change. But in light of eternity, it is a small price to pay. Because the wreath we're pursuing is not perishable, but imperishable. And so that's why I do what he says in 927. I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He says we need to finish what we start. So let's bring this home to ourselves. What about you? Are you content with the good start you made in your Christian life? Once upon a time, you did some things. And now you can coast into heaven. Have you lost your zeal? Have you quit striving and struggling to the end? Are you content with the good start? Or do you continue to pursue the prize of the upward call? Paul would ask us, how strategic are you in your training? How focused are you in the race? How much time are you spending developing knowledge, developing wisdom, developing virtue, cultivating maturity, spiritual vision, endurance? The spiritual disciplines like prayer and Bible study and collective worship, these are tools God has given us for, for this purpose, for these training purposes. Are you running like you want the prize or are you sort of just aimlessly living your life? Are you boxing like you want to win a fight? Or are you just sort of aimlessly beating the air? I told you I was going to go heavy on sports metaphors, so let me give you one more. You know who Leon Lett is? Leon Lett. Um, those of you who do know, I'll bet I know the first thing you think about when you think about Leon Lett. So Leon Lett was, uh, was a great offensive lineman for the Dallas Cowboys in the 90s, and those, that dynasty, that big, those uh, Super Bowl runs. But if... You know Leon Lett, the first thing you think about, it's not all the Pro Bowls he was a part of. It's not the three Super Bowl rings. It's not the fact that he's one of the 50 greatest Cowboys of all time. If you know Leon Lett, what you think about are two catastrophic mistakes he made in his career. One of them was in the Super Bowl. I think it was the third Super Bowl they won. When he recovered a fumble and he started running it into the end zone and he was going to score. But right before he crossed the goal line, he held the ball out, weirdly kind of down to his side, he held the ball out sort of showboating, and a little wide receiver named Dan Beebe ran up behind him, knocked it out of his hand, and the Bills regained possession of the ball. 
Ten months later, less than a year after that, in the regular season, the Cowboys were about to win another game after a blocked field goal. And if nobody touched the ball, the game would have been over. Cowboys would have won, and yet, for some reason, let foolishly touch the ball, wanting to grab it and score, making the ball live. The Dolphins recovered it, and then they were able to successfully kick a, a field goal on a second try, and they won the game. One blooper cost the Cowboys a chance to score the most points ever in a Super Bowl. The other cost them the game. And so despite the Pro Bowls and the Super Bowl rings, Lett will always be remembered for those two plays. He failed to finish two things well. His name is a byword for blowing it in the end, foolishly. See, Paul tells us that the Leon Lett of the Old Testament is Israel herself, who became a byword for blowing every advantage. On the doorstep of the promised land, they squander everything and they fail to finish. Paul uses the example to tell the Corinthians, you know, it happened to them, and it can happen to you. They are a whole lot, they're a whole lot more similar to you than you ever imagined. You know, they were baptized. You know, they had a connection to Christ. They were provided for. And so he says, if anyone thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. If it happened to them, it can happen to you. It's not just what you've done in your past. It's how you finish that matters. So you may have been baptized, which is great. But you need to understand... That's not the end of the matter. It's only the beginning. It's time to run like you want to win, not coast along. You may have done a lot of great things for the Lord, to which we should be grateful, and we should look fondly on that. You may have been a Christian for a long time. I'm glad. It's better than being a Christian for a short time. But you're not done. You're not as knowledgeable. You're not as mature. You're not as wise. You're not as prepared as you could be. And the ugly reality of this passage, the the warning here, one that's played itself out in people we know, there are many people who have fallen away completely, as this generation of Israelites did. People who had great resumes in God's kingdom up to a point, but didn't finish like they started. And unless they repent, they will lose their souls forever. It happened to Israel. The danger is happening in Corinth, and it can happen to us. The question Paul wants us to ask is, are we going to finish? Are we going to keep running? Are we going to put it in neutral? And coast probably not into God's eternal kingdom. Maybe there's someone here that needs to repent of of all of this. This coasting, pathology, this refusal to strive, this refusal to stop running in order to win. We stand ready to help you get back on track, to help you run, to run alongside you, to push each other. If you need to do that, if you need to come and start your Christian walk in the first place, to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, we invite you to come right now as we stand and sing. While we pray, while we plead, while you see your soul while your Father calls you home, will you not, dear sinner, come? Why not now? Why not now? Why not come to Jesus now? Why not now? Why not now? Why not come to Jesus now? Come to Christ, confession make. Come to Christ and pardon take. 
Trusting Him from day to day, He will keep you all the way. Why not now? Why not now? Why not come to Jesus now? Why not now? Why not now? Why not come to Jesus now? Well, thank you for being here. Let's try to all be back tonight at five.